Bible with you this morning. We'll be looking at John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. So hear the word of God. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made, where he had made water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would would awaken us where we are sleeping. I pray that you would um, take our faith from one step to another, take our faith and make it deeper, take our faith uh, and make it more precious to us, make it more genuine. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if it's your first time here, we're well into a series on the Gospel of John. And today's, um, as as usual, I'm going to start with a question. And the question is this. um, If you were a Christian, how'd that happen? In other words, if if you consider yourself to be a a Christian, how did that happen? What, 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 What was the process that you went through? And one of the reasons I ask is because I'm guessing that everyone in here had a different process, and that's sort of the beauty of it. In, in other words, some people grew up in church, I bet. If we took a survey, you grew up in church, and you, you, you just have always believed, right? Just for, for, for as long as you can remember, it just sort of happened that way. And that, that's valid. That's, that's real. Some, some are like me, right? I didn't grow up going to church, and I was invited to a camp in, in high school, at the end of high school, and I became a Christian. It was a pretty dramatic then. And some people are invited to a Bible study. Some people come in through all different ways. You know, I read a couple years ago, um, Andrew Claven wrote a memoir called The Great Good Thing. And the subtitle, I think, is something like A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, right? So that, that got my attention. And how he became a Christian was that he, he studied Western art and literature. And he, he was just consumed with the beauty of, of Western English poetry. And he wanted to find out where did that come from? Well, that came from this sort of Christian worldview. And that led him to start uh, examining who Christ was. And the next thing you know, he's a Christian. In fact, the book opens up with this Jewish guy standing beside a, a baptismal font. I think his latest book has something to do with finding the words of Jesus in English poets or something like that. that he, it's, it's a path that not many people take to become a Christian, but he did. What we're going to talk about today, up to this point, we've been talking about Jesus' encounters with different people, right? Whether it's an encounter with John or it's an encounter with Nicodemus or it's an encounter with the woman at the well. 
You remember, they're all different. They all, they all have a different response to Jesus. The woman, Nicodemus, he hears about Jesus and he sort of slinks away into the night. And, and we think he's a secret believer because he comes up at the end and he, he seems to be a believer in Jesus. The, the woman at the well, right? She goes from being a Samaritan outcast to, to being the best evangelist in the Bible almost, or certainly in the New Testament. She brings a whole town to Christ. Her, her, her redemption, her forgiveness, her salvation, her conversion, all of it are as notorious as her sin was. So people, people come out to see. Today we're going to look at a story that's not, certainly not as dramatic as the woman at the well, but it's interesting nonetheless because today what we're going to see is sort of how faith happens, how a lot of, a lot of us, the path that a lot of us take to get there. And, and it goes from sort of not having any faith at all to suddenly being a believer and it happens all in the course of one day. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Basically, we're going to look at a speculative faith, we're going to look at a desperate faith, and we're going to look at a genuine faith. Okay? We're going to look at someone who's, who demonstrates a speculative faith, someone who demonstrates a desperate faith, and someone who desperate, demonstrates a genuine faith. And by the way, that's all the same person in all the same day. Okay? So let's look first at a speculative faith. It says in verse 46, So he came down to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So point number one, a speculative faith. What do I mean by a speculative faith? And what I mean by a speculative faith is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of like the faith of a gambler. It's the faith of someone who plays the lottery. Right? It, it, in other words, they don't really have any faith, I, but they, they're hoping that something good can come of this. I mean, I always wonder, you know, I went at Fred Meyer down here. You, when I go in, there's a, a lottery machine right there, and there are always people standing in front of it. And I always think to myself, hmm, I wonder if it's worth a shot. What have I got to lose, right? I, didn't, I don't know how much lottery tickets are. Like, I'll assume they're a dollar, right? Uh, you know, what, what, is, what, what, what do I have to lose by just putting one dollar in there, you know? Well, I've never done that because, of course, the day that I did that would be the day that a financial planner from the church would come in and bust me and, you know, everything. I haven't done it. But you get the idea. It's, it's, the, it's a person who's just sort of like, hmm. What do I got to lose? I found a dollar. I might as well buy a lottery ticket. And if I, if I win a million dollars, great. If I don't win anything, I haven't lost anything. It's that kind of faith. And so that's what you see here with the man. That's how he starts out. Notice it says that there was an official whose son was ill. Now, this official was probably an official from Herod's court. right? The, the word in Greek there, that would, would lead us to believe that. And he was probably well-respected. He had an ill son who is on the point of death. And he hears about Jesus from the, the event that happened at the wedding. Remember, it says it right at the beginning. It says, he came to Cana where the water had been made wine. So this man had heard that there's this rabbi going around that's pretty tricksy, right? That he can do some things. He's got a son that's ill. Why not ask him? Why not, just say, why not go to him and say, hey, can you heal my son? If he can heal him, great. If he can't, I haven't lost anything. But you don't get the idea that he's just like, he's heard of this guy Jesus and suddenly he's been converted and he just can't wait to, to be in relationship with him. It's not like that at all. It, it's very transactional. I want, if he can do something for me, great. If he can't, great. The problem with that kind of faith 
it's a sense, if you're familiar with Pascal's wager, right? Pascal's wager is very famous with apologists in Christianity. Pascal was, Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher, and that was back in the days, right, before they had Netflix and stuff. So they sat around and thought about this kind of thing. And, and Pascal would say that a rational person, a rational person is going to act like there's a God and will believe there is a God. And the reason he says it's rational, because it's a gamble. If you believe that, if you act like there's a God and you just believe that there's a God and you die and you, you get to heaven and there, or you die and there is no God, well, you haven't lost anything. But if you, if you believe that there's a God and you die and it's true, then you get like heaven and eternal joy and all that. And of course you avoid hell. Now, the problem with that is it's speculative. You, it, it's a, it, by definition, it's a wager. It's called a wager that I'm just going to believe just in case there is a God. I'm going to believe just in case there is a heaven. I'm going to believe just in case there is a hell. The problem with speculative faith is it can't change you. It doesn't change you. You're the same person before you speculated as you were after you speculated. You just have put your, your dollar in the lottery machine, wondering and hoping that there is a God. Some of us in here are probably like that. We're here today because we're like, you know, why not? Why not give it a shot, <laughs> right? Like, I, probably, if there is a God, it's better that I go to church and act like a Christian than if I don't go to church and don't act like a Christian. But that's all speculative. If you haven't really encountered Jesus, it can't change you. Now, the interesting thing, let's, let's call this official Max. It just makes it easier than saying the, the official. Um, so, so this guy, Max, Max has gone to Jesus, he has asked him, and basically he's gambling, he's hoping for the best. Perhaps he will heal my son. Now what Max doesn't get is that Jesus wants more for Max than a speculative faith. Right? He doesn't really de- understand who he's dealing with. Jesus isn't just a rabbi who can do cool things. Jesus is a rabbi who wants to transform people. Jesus is a rabbi who wants to save people. Jesus is a rabbi who wants a relationship with people. And so it took me a while as I was thinking through this this week to understand what is Jesus doing here? Because Jesus essentially, to to get Max out of his sort of speculative situation, Jesus employs a little shock and awe here. If you're reading along here, the words of Jesus, they're almost like stubbing your toe. You expect him, you know, this guy is gone, he's got a sick son, he's going to die. You expect this nice pastor to just be nice all the time and say, oh, of course, I'll come, I'll do whatever you want. Notice what Jesus says instead. He goes to Jesus in verse 48, and he, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's hard to get. If you, you have to look at the footnote there if you're reading this in English, because the word you there is plural. Because there's, there's clearly, there's always people around Jesus. And so when you read it that way, it makes more sense. So imagine people around Jesus, and apparently Galileans were really into signs and wonders. Galileans were all about, like, who's the, who's the next rabbi, the next magician, the next wonder worker that we can follow, right? They didn't have Netflix. Let's find something to watch. Let's watch this guy, Jesus. They're always looking for signs. This guy comes up, you know, people are pestering Jesus for signs and wonders, and he says, will you heal my son? And now you can understand Jesus' response when he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. He's speaking out to to the crowd, or unless y'all, if you're from the south, or yins, if you're from the northeast, you get the point. 
Is Jesus saying, all you guys want is signs and wonders. All you guys want is something from me. All you want is to see something, but you don't really want me. And what we see in this, in this transaction is that Max's faith turns from desperate or from speculative to desperate because a, a bad thing has happened to him. And oftentimes you hear people ask, and, you know, why, like, why do bad things happen? Here's a hint. Sometimes God uses those bad things to draw us to himself or, in fact, to drive us to himself. And so what is Jesus doing here? Basically, um, Jesus is putting in front of, of Max the, the question that's implicit. What are you going to do when Jesus is your only option? What, what are you going to do when nothing else can help you? What are you going to do when you're com- at the complete end of your rope? He's asking Max to go, to go all in. He's not asking Max to be speculative anymore. Or if he is asking him to be speculative, he's basically saying, Max, if you're going to speculate on me, you're going to have to put all your chips in. You're going to have to put everything in. In other words, Jesus gives him this sort of shock and awe. You people just want signs from me. You just want wonders from me. And so Max is now going to have to decide, am I going to go all in or am I going to fold and go home? Right? I love watching uh, poker sometimes. Right? I'm, I'm sensing this gambling streak in myself this week. Um, you know, if you watch poker, it's, 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 fan- it's amazing to watch these guys because they're constantly calculating their head and I love it when a guy thinks he has a good hand and the guy across from him pushes all the chips in. Because at that point, no matter how good your hand is, you have to decide, am I all in or am I folding and walking away? That's why I don't play poker either. (laughs) Max is going to have to go all in. We see his faith suddenly go from speculative to desperate. Notice what he says. It says in verse 49, 48, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. That basically what you have here is a desperate father. And what he's basically saying to Jesus is, I'm not here to see a sign and a wonder. I'm here because I need one. I'm not here to be entertained. I'm here because I am desperate. And I love it. He, he sort of pulls on Jesus what Mary pulled on Jesus. If you remember back to the, the, when the water was turned to wine. Remember Jesus said, woman? <laughs> and Mary just looked at the servant and said, do what he tells you. And she acted as if he's going to do it. This man does the same thing, sort of. He doesn't beg Jesus. He says, sir, come. That's all I've got. You're you're the only thing that I have, that he has gotten to a place of desperate faith. Now, here's the... Desperate faith, I think, is better than speculative faith. In some sense, speculative faith isn't faith at all. It's a gamble. Desperate faith is better than speculative faith, but it still has the problem that it's situationally dependent. All of us have been in situations... I was trying to think, when when have I done this? When I was in the Army, I went to, to Free Fall Parachuting School, and... The thing with free fall parachuting school is you have, to, you, you have to fall stable at each stage. You have to do 25 jumps, and at, at each five jumps, they do something different. And if at any given stage, after the first stage, you don't fall stable, you fail. And by not falling stables, I mean just being sort of like, you know, doing that. And so on our first equipment jump, 
They, I had a 50-pound rucksack behind me, I dove out of the airplane, and a strap cut loose, and the thing started flailing, and so I was tumbling and spinning for about 10,000 feet. And I'll never forget the whole time I was doing this, trying to get stable, but also for 10,000 feet, I was saying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. Until finally, I remember what got me stable, it was like the Heisman. And I was flying, and the, you know, the, the instructor just flies in front of you, and he sees you, and he goes, and then he flies away to grade someone else. That's it. Speculative, uh, desperate faith. I, I didn't have any other off. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And as soon as, I've, as, soon as it, I was stable and pulled, I didn't think about Jesus anymore. I was thinking about getting on the ground and telling everyone a great story I just had. You see, desperate faith is situationally dependent. All of us have those. And, and many of us only think about our faith when we get desperate, right? When we lose a job, when, when we have a child who is prodigal, something. And Jesus wants more for us than that. He'll take it, but he wants more than that. He wants more than that for us. You know, I was thinking this week, it reminds me when I ask my, talk to my father future father-in-law about marrying my wife and <laughs> they owned a real estate company they lived on the golf course and I knew the question was going to come he said so Tommy what tell me about your financial plan and I said well I said I could end up being like a professor or something and we could be do pretty well I said or I don't know we could end up being missionaries and be poor the rest of our life <laughs> and he said well <laughs> I might not be as good a Christian as you, but it's always good to have something in your back pocket. And he gave me this sort of lecture about you always have to be prepared to take care of yourself. And there's, there's some wisdom in that on one hand. On the other hand, clearly, Orville, that was his name, hadn't read uh, John Calvin's Institutes. Chapter, chapter 3, book 9, or book 3, chapter 9 where the summary of the whole chapter says, by our tribulations, God weans us from excessive love of this present life. That sometimes it doesn't matter how good your plan is. Sometimes it doesn't matter how financially secure you are. Sometimes it doesn't matter how healthy you think you are. Sometimes it doesn't matter how great you think your family is. Sometimes God weans us from excessive love of this present life by taking things away from us or making things difficult for us. And that's not because he's angry at us. It's be, actually, it's because he loves us. I mean, if you think about it, what if everything in your life was perfect all the time? What if your job was perfect? What if your kids were perfect? What if your wife was perfect? What if your husband was perfect? What if nothing ever bad happened? What if your candidate for president won every single election? And what if people didn't, you know, spend us into oblivion? All these kinds of things. You wouldn't need a God, would you? And God is, God is so gracious and wise, and in his providence, he's able to tailor a solution for all of us to make sure that we want him and know that he is our only comfort and hope in life and in death. And here's the thing also. Desperate faith isn't necessarily wrong. It isn't necessarily wrong to call out on God when you feel desperate. In fact, one of the greatest examples we see in the whole Bible is Jesus himself. Jesus experienced desperate faith. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember he said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, 
please let it pass remember it said that he sweat drops of blood he was so desperate and so in prayer when he was at the on the cross he became desperate my god my god why have you forsaken me now the difference between jesus and and me frankly jesus and most of us is that he he trusted god's goodness through his desperation in other words it's not wrong to be desperate but we also, we need, we, we are going to do better if we are able, like Jesus, to trust God and to trust his goodness through our desperation. And when we start doing this, that, that's when we start having a genuine faith. Right? If you only ever trust God when you're desperate, that doesn't change you, it doesn't help you. But if you're able to trust God and trust him when you're desperate, then you be, your faith be, starts to become more genuine. That's what happens for Max here. Notice in uh, verse 50, Max has said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed that the word Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now this is interesting because this is the first time that I, that I can think of that Jesus actually heals at a distance. Right? Max has come to him and asked him two times in the same passage, Sir, will you come down? Right? They were in Cana. He's from Capernaum. It was about 15 miles downhill. Right? And so he says, will you come down to where I live and heal my son? Two times he asks him. And instead of Jesus saying, sure, I'll come right with you, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Heals him at a distance. Why does Jesus do that? I think Jesus does it, well, for one, he, he might not have wanted to walk 15 miles to do something he could have done virtually, right? He might not have had time. That's a, that's a 30-mile walk both ways, right? That's, that's a couple of days. I think there's something more to it than that, though. Jesus was concerned about the boy, so he healed him. I think he was concerned about Max, and so he did it at a distance. Because Max is going to have to now decide, do I believe this rabbi or not? In other words, if Jesus had gone with him, and Max, they just walked home with him, and then Jesus went up to the boy and touched him, Max wouldn't have had to believe anything. He wouldn't have had to do it. He wouldn't have had to trust anything. But when Jesus says, go, your son lives, now all of a sudden Max either goes and trusts the, wor the words of Jesus, or he doesn't. Or he stands there and begs him, and notice what it says. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You know, sometimes the, the only thing we have is the word of Jesus. Sometimes the only thing we have to know that things are going to be okay is the word of Jesus. Sometimes the, the only way we know that things are going to be okay is God's word. Remember, uh, Charles Spurgeon used to always talk, he said the reason we need to, to read our Bibles is this, not because to make God love you and not just to learn the history of the Bible and not just so you can win at sword drills if you used to be Baptist, you know, all these kind of things. He says we read our Bibles because the, the Bible is where all of God's promises are. And in order to understand and to remind ourselves of the promises of God, we have to know them. And, and so Max believes the word of Jesus, and he receives almost immediate confirmation of that word. 
It says in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Now, wow. What happened to, what happened to Max in the course of one day took me what, what amounts to 30 weeks of therapy to accomplish. What do I mean by that? In the course of one day, right? Basically, this past summer, I went through a two-week intensive therapy thing for pastors who've been abused and traumatized as children. And it was all day, every day for two weeks. Amounts to about 30 weeks of therapy. And what the therapist did eventually was remind me and show me and help me to understand that through all of the trauma, through all of the abuse, through all the desperation in my life, that God has been faithful. That the you look back and say, wow, God, God wasn't faithful to me in my trauma. God wasn't faithful to me when I was being abused. God, not, not only was he faithful to me, but he was making me into someone who could be a blessing to other people. Not all of you, right? I know. <laughs> but to a good many. And, and my, my wife can tell you, it changed everything for me. It changed everything. Well, that... If that whole sequence of events that I went through, and many of you have too, to get to a point of really understanding God's faithfulness, Max experienced in the course of about 24 hours. Right? Imagine Max, his, his servants are coming up to tell him, and they tell him his son has been made well, and Max can see that even when I went to that rabbi with just a gambler's faith, maybe he could do it. And he said something hard to me, and it, and it hurt. And yet, he pushed me some more, and he pushed me some more, and I believed what he said, and now look at this. My son has been made well. It's sort of a therapeutic moment he has there. And what's interesting is that he, he realized that in the moment of his greatest despair, God was doing something wonderful. Because did you notice what it said at the, at the end of this? Don't miss that. It says at the end, and he himself believed in all his whole household. What is there to believe anymore? He's believing in Jesus now. That, that he has been changed. He has been transformed. Now he realizes this rabbi is someone whom I need to be following. And not only does he be- become a believer, he becomes an evangelist. It doesn't just say, and he believed it says he and his whole family believed. How do you think his family came to believe unless Max told them? Let me tell you all of the things that this rabbi has done for our family. Let me tell you about his faithfulness to us. Let me tell you how I met God today. And suddenly it's like the story of the woman at the well, right? How do, how do we reach people for Christ? How do we reach people with the gospel? We tell our story and invite them to come and see. Simple as that. And so, basically, um, the other thing we should notice is that this whole story of Max, should, it, it should remind us of the cross, right? Because what happens at the cross? At the cross, the, what, what the disciples thought was the worst thing in the world was happening. 
that Jesus had come to be the king, and just a week earlier, they had been waving palms and shouting Hosanna to, to the king, and now he is crucified in the most vile, despicable way imaginable. He is being killed between two thieves, and that, what worse could possibly happen? And what the disciples couldn't know then, but they would know later, is right in the moment when they thought the worst possible thing was happening, God was doing the best possible thing. In the, in the moment when they thought all was lost, all was being won. You see, sometimes the, the reason we need to have faith is because we can't see everything all the time. Instead, do we believe in the goodness of God in our good times, but also in the goodness of God through our bad times? Could it be possible for with, the, with the thing that you're going through right now, that you think... How are we going to survive this? Or what's going to happen with this? Or what's going to happen with it? That God might not actually be doing the best possible thing right now. And in fact, he promised that, that, that for those who know him, all, all things work together for the good of those who, who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let me close um, with this. Let me just ask you again. I'll ask you the question that's sort of like I asked you at the beginning. Like, where are you in your faith? Are you speculative right now? Did you sort of come here going, yeah, I'll check it out. Why not? What's it going to take to get you to the next place? Are you desperate in your faith? Is that where you are today? Uh, you're here because you don't, you don't even know what else to do. You have some issue. You have some struggle. You have some situations in your life. You don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're trying to figure out how even to know God. If, if that's who you are today, I'd ask you to come forward after the service. Deacons are here every week. I, I often forget to say that, but deacons are here every week, and they would love to pray for you. They'd love to, to help you out in any way they can. And the final, uh, if you have a genuine faith, basically, um, can you look back and see God's goodness in your life? Or maybe you should do that. When is the last time you did that? When's the last time you sat down maybe with your husband or your wife or, or, or even your kids and said, let's talk about how good God has been to us? If that's who you are, now you can just start going and telling other people that story. What's keeping you from that? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that wherever we are in our faith, um, that you would meet us. That even as we approach the Lord's table, that you would meet um, those who are speculative and those who are desperate and those who are, who are genuine in their faith. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.